Hey, Tobin. Welcome to Making Digital Again, the show where we talk about design, technology, and product and how they intersect to make digital goodness. We are so happy that you're here, Tobin, and all of the other other multitudes of, of guests that we have joining us this week. We are in part two of our series on work-life balance. And I am joined once again by my lovely, lovely co-host, Jeremy Carney. Say hi, Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. And I wanted to say I remembered not to do the intro this time, so I think I got some sleep from last time. I, I feel a little bit more well-rested. Took a couple of days off. And, you know, didn't didn't step on your toes there. Well, that, that that's appreciated. I, on the other hand, feel overwhelmed and exhausted at the moment. So I don't know that there is a more apt time to talk about work-life balance for myself. Where we left off last time was talking about some capacity. Uh, so why don't you catch us up real quick on that, Jeremy? To oversimplify it, what we were talking about was our individual capacity with the goal being work-life balance. One thing that I said in there was it's as simple as an area calculation. Uh, when you're doing geometry, I, I stunned Jared with remembering how to calculate area, length times width. But in this case, it's the amount of hours you have versus the amount of, of hours of work that you want to take on. That's the very, very simplified version of capacity. But then... We need to take that to team capacity and figure out how to calculate that. That's easy, though, because all team capacity is, is 40-ish hours times however many people you have, right? Yeah, but think about how much time you actually spend on your project work, Jared. When I say project work, I don't mean just execution and actually as a designer sitting down and designing something or as a manager... Um, you know, doing strategy and planning. Uh, but but there's also, as part of project work, discovery, um, planning sessions, reporting, storytelling, documentation, stakeholder management. It's not just project work. Think about all the other things that you've been asked to do that could be lumped in under admin time or other other types of work. Yeah, that's a really good point. I can't tell you how many non- project things come into my day and the day of the designers on my team that are important, that can't just be skipped over uh, if you want to have a team for longer than six months to a year. Things like critique and collaboration. Those are not a designer sitting down at their desk and pounding out a comp, but they're essential to high quality design work. Stakeholder relationships and connections. Oh my goodness, just like we talked about a few episodes ago, how every designer needs to be fostering those relationships if you want to have a truly effective program. And then you have career growth and performance tracking. One of the commitments that I make to my designers is that that will be a key piece of, of my responsibility. I want them growing on my team because if they're not growing on my team, they're going to go elsewhere. So all of those things, you're right, they, they add up and they take away from the capacity for project work. 
I, I want to quickly call out that stakeholder relationships and connections because that's something I want to talk about in a future episode. A lot of directors and managers tend to hoard those relationships and feel like they need to own them. But I love letting designers and individual contributors own those relationships and build them. But that is a big part of the job. But let's get back to the topic. We're still assuming that everyone's spending 40 hours a week working. We have to ask ourselves, does everyone really have 40 hours a week? And I have a funny story uh, at a previous company that Jared and I worked at where we had difficulty with our leadership distracting us, I think is the best way that I can put it. Uh, they would come into the office and um, they'd, they'd want to uh, show us a YouTube video or uh, they, they, they'd want to you know, start talking about something and gather us up or take us out and um, you know, go do something that wasn't work related. And we still had to make up that work. And so I made these focus time signs for our office doors so that they knew when they came in that if that sign was on the door, that we were focusing on product work. We were a professional services company. Our hours were tied straight to deliverables. They had to get done at some point in time. We needed time to focus, and that sign meant, please don't enter. And I remember having a discussion with them, and they, they were asking me, like, do we really need these? Is this really important? And I brought up some statistics about how many hours people actually spend towards their product work, and they were like, blown away slash didn't really agree with me. They, they just assumed that everybody was putting 40 hours of fully focused work time into whatever we did. I remember him coming in and uh, wanting to show us Simpsons videos. And then I remember one holiday season where we had some sort of major deliverable due and he forced us to go watch Avatar with him. <laughs> <laughs> that was, <laughs> and I think we were sitting. We went and saw it with his mom. Was that is that who we saw it with? Yeah, so I don't know. It, I think it, so. it, it was odd. <laughs> it was pretty funny. I'll, I'll just um, say that's not a short movie. That's th that's three hours of time <laughs> that is taken yeah. out of a workday. And and while a, a movie outing is appreciated, it, it was just one of many things that led to distraction. So we talk about that, that focus time. Not everybody has 40 hours of dedicated time per week, but a lot of people work in a startup environment where the expectation is typically a lot higher than it is in a, you know, an established enterprise type, uh, type environment. Sometimes the expectation is, you know, 40 to 60 hours or even potentially higher. How do you address that amount of capacity? I think that's where really having people believe in what you're doing or rewarding them for their time or just being cognizant of the time that they're spending and, and trying to give them time elsewhere is really important. Burnout is a real thing. And when you're constantly asking people over and over again to work extra hours, it, you're working on borrowed time. Sometimes the pain is worth the gain, but not every time and not forever. 
It reminds me of a story uh, when a, a previous boss of mine had visited the uh, MySpace offices in California. And uh, this boss was very much like, I expect you to be working 60 to 80, 60 to 80 hours a week and I need this amount of productivity out, out of you. And he, he visited the MySpace offices. This must have been around 2010 or so. Uh, so, you know, MySpace was kind of already well past its prime. Um, and he saw the MySpace employees leaving the office at five o'clock and he came back and he told this this story about how how they had gone so corporate and he can't believe what uh, how unproductive they are because they're leaving at five o'clock. Um, like they, they must just be you know phoning it in because no productive team member leaves at at five o'clock. And I was just I was just stunned because that's not true. Yeah, that brings up another story about the social network that kind of made MySpace um, obsolete. And, and that was at this Fortune 100 company that we were working for. They brought in Facebook's chief learning officer to talk about how Facebook got to where it was. And someone asked during a, a Q&A, someone asked the, the chief learning officer, they said, when I came to visit the Facebook campus once, I saw toothbrushes in the bathroom and sleeping bags under people's desks. How do you get people to do that? How do you get people to want and believe in their work so much that they want to stay there late and that they want to um, keep those things there and be so dedicated to their work? And Facebook's chief learning officer looked at the crowd and they said, you don't. They said, that's not who we are now because it had been a couple of years. They, th their point was they worked their way out of that as they raised money, as they grew, they and as they um, built organization and understood what they needed to get done, they gave work-life balance back to their employees because it's temporary. And they knew that. And even in a company at Facebook where it might be financially paying off, there's still that toll to asking people to give everything they have to something that they might or might not believe in. You bring up a very interesting perspective, though. We've been focusing on capacity as though it is a quantitative measure. There is a, there's a fixed amount of hours that equals capacity, but there is a huge qualitative piece to capacity as well. People tend to be more willing to work on something that they believe in, and they're less likely to burn out when they're when they're giving more if they believe in that thing if they feel supported if they feel like they are making a meaningful contribution so there are non-intuitive things that as a leader i can do to invest in my teams to make that qualitative judgment of my uh, of my team better to, to make them more willing to give more because they believe in it more and because they they feel supported and and liked in their in their position. Yeah, absolutely. And when you kind of boil that down and you look at it when you start looking at what your team does in terms of outcomes over widgets delivered or hours worked, it it changes the perspective because if you're only looking at hours worked um if you're only looking at 
the number of things that they got done, or as a previous manager of mine used to say, butts in seats. They wanted to see butts in seats uh, as his measure of if his team was doing well. You you take away the humanity of what they're building. And on top of that, they're, people just need breaks. People need to celebrate. People need to relax and not just see their workplace as a factory. And so you can do some non-intuitive things like coffee times. You see a lot of startups you know, leaving snacks out, uh, having nap areas. Uh, at a previous company, we created something called Fermented Friday where the I, the idea we had a little slogan for it was if the reports are sent it's time to ferment but the whole point of it was we needed our people on in, on our team to send out weekly status reports and that was a hard thing to do on friday at the end of the day you're burned out um you you're you know ready to to relax and so we would you know bring in a six pack to the office and once the the customer um updates were sent out uh, we would all kick back, have a drink, and relax, and just talk and wind down. It's similar to something that that I like to do with with my team, uh, which is kind of morphed over over COVID. But uh, a a coffee time where it's a dedicated time every week where we get together for for a few minutes, and we are not talking about work. We don't talk about project. We don't talk about tasks. We don't talk about things that are related to the job that we do. We're there to invest in each other. And it's amazing how that helps mold the team and lift their spirits and in a lot of ways draws out more capacity than it costs us to invest into it. Absolutely. And and those things really are multipliers. If you can get people to be happy with where they are, with the people that they work around, feel connected to that and to the mission of what you're doing, you will get more out of them than if you just point them and say 40 hours and this number of things delivered. So we, we've talked a lot about what affects capacity, but we haven't really gotten into calculating it other than the very simple um, you know, uh, equation that I gave you at the beginning. One thing I want to talk about as we get into that idea is context ramp and ramp up and ramp down time people don't just start on a project um, they don't just sit down and immediately dive into something you have to understand what's needed you've got to remember where you left off and then if you have to switch tasks you usually have to wrap that task up and so the more projects you add to someone's plate the less ability they have to focus on those projects. And so in whatever time that they're actually giving you in terms of project time, let's say you know they're giving you 30 hours a week dedicated to project time. Well, that, if they have one project, they could probably spend all 30 hours of their project time focused on it. Two projects, maybe 90% of that time could be focused on project time. And 3%, 80%, of that time would be focused on project time because of that ramp up and that ramp down. And I know a lot of people are like very strong believers in multitasking and that you can easily click between projects. Um, I've never seen someone do it effectively. I know people who can handle a lot of things at one time, but I also know that those people work a lot of hours. And 
I, there's a cost for splitting your brain. There's a cost for doing those projects. And we're not saying don't give your people more than one project. We're saying understand the cost that comes and understand the reduction in capacity as you add additional projects to their plate. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. I think that's a good rule of thumb to say that for every effort that an individual takes on, subtract 10% from their capacity. Yeah, it just gives you a good baseline and a good way to be empathetic for, I'm going to put this project on your plate, but I know that you're not going to be able to give as much in return across the board. So let's look at what takes away from those 40 hours. We Earlier we talked about the admin work and all the other things that aren't really like project work, but there are other things like vacation days, workshops, Christmas parties, going out to see a movie uh, when your boss asks you to. How do we handle all of those things and still work them into our capacity? And that's something that was really important to Jared and I when we were standing up a system for a team at our previous company was we were about to align our process with our developers and do two-week iterations. But we wanted to make sure that in those two-week iterations, we didn't just give everyone the same amount of capacity or points or however you're looking at it. We wanted them to be able to list out the things that were going to take them away from work and make those considerations in what we do. And so, Jared, do you want to talk a little bit about how we did that? Yeah, I think you you touched on it in that the list was the most important first step. Getting someone to actually think through the next amount of time, whether that's two weeks or four weeks or six weeks, and say, these are all the things that I know that I need to get done. That helps them then start to manage it. Because like it or not, our brains work when we're on work and when we're off work. And um, that's something that I've personally learned to leverage in, in kind of my um, productivity hack is that if I will make that list of things that I know I have upcoming, my, my brain's going to help me out because it's going to solve those problems. It's going gonna, it's gonna to help me think through those when I'm not even actively thinking about it. Uh, so making that list is the, is the number one thing. And then it gave, it gave me as the project lead the ability to to talk about the prioritization of that list. Because like it or not, priorities change, right? And priorities change probably more often than any of us care, care for them to. Knowing what everybody's list is and knowing what they see as upcoming helps us to have an open and honest conversation. More so though, when that list is made in a public and open forum with the team, well, I've got three or four designers on the team and they all have their list and we're talking about it, then it it adds motivation and it adds collaboration and it helps us to look where those crossover points are. So maybe you don't have as much work as you thought you did, or maybe it makes you realize that you're missing some things that you should be working on because, you know, John Doe over there has these things on his list and that affects your work. So that, that, that public and open nature of sharing of sharing that those list of priorities is a big is a big part of them. Then another thing is trust. 
And as a leader, this is something that I struggled with at first when we implemented this method. But we made a commitment right off the bat to let each team member articulate how much bandwidth they had for that iteration. To say, I know that I've got this half-day workshop coming up next week. I'm taking a day off for PTO next, um, you know, at the end of next week. And therefore, I only have 40 hours of capacity for the next two weeks. And we took that on the honor system and we did our best to judge by the outcome of that sprint and not the output of that sprint. Again, it's not about widgets delivered. It's about the outcomes that get delivered. Then the conversation was able to shift to where I think it, it should be instead of us, you know, just randomly trying to figure out what are, what are all the things that we're doing uh, and how do we get that organized? We are able to start thinking about prioritization, which is a place where a lot of teams really don't focus enough time is, are we doing the highest value items and not just delivering widgets? And I can tell you, teams are going to do this. They're going to set the priority, whether you do it intentionally or not. But if you're not intentional about setting that priority, then teams are going to just go in circles and you're going to lose a lot of that hard earned capacity because you're not making a decision on what is the most valuable thing you should be working on. Yeah. And when teams don't have priority, um, if it doesn't come down from on high or from their leadership um, or they don't have a way to get it, they'll do one of two things. They'll make it up. And that tends to be my way of doing things. Um, I have to have priority. And so I'll try and find some system in which to judge the, the work that needs to be done and put it into a priority list and then try and get a reaction from my leadership. Or some teams just don't start. They look at the list of all the things that need to get done and they go, we don't know where to start. And they'll sit there. And that's neither of those are great. It's best if you can get it from leadership, but it happens. That reminds me of the prioritization workshop that we ran just a few weeks ago at our, at our current company. We had this huge goal that was upcoming and we had a team that had been working so hard on it and just killing it all, you know, all the way through. But we had a long list of things that was coming at us from, from product, from engineering, from different, different parts of the business of things that they wanted delivered by a certain date. We were trying to do it all, but no one on the team really thought that we could do it all. We just weren't really talking about it. We weren't acknowledging it. And I think there was a lot of pent up frustration or disappointment or things that had started to build. So eventually the, the vice president of product and I got together and said, Hey, look, let's do, let's do a prioritization workshop. Let's, let's get these teams aligned on what the highest value items are. And let's in include executive leadership in this, because if they're not included in it, then they're going to have the power to just turn around and, and reset all the priorities that we just aligned on. So as a, as a part of that, 
uh, I asked Jeremy to come in and help facilitate because he's great at running things like that. So Jeremy, why don't you tell them what we did in that workshop? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We had really amazing participants who were all pretty vocal in the, the process. And we used a pretty simple priority grid where we ranked the work that needed to be done. We had already broken it up and um, kind of taken an initial stab at what we thought the priority was. And then we took those items and we ranked them one at a time on a scale and on, on a graph um, where the two axes were importance to the customer and feasibility. And so the things in the top right corner, if you're imagining this, are the most important, most feasible. And those are the things you should do first. And then as you go down from top right to bottom left, those things get less important to the customer and they get harder to do. And so it gave us this really good framework for everyone to sit there and visualize what needed to be done. And one big fear that I've noticed when working with stakeholders is that they don't like the word prioritization sometimes because they're afraid that what you're saying is you choose the things that we're not going to do. And we knew going into this workshop that that like could be a fear. It's a fear everywhere, not just with this this workshop, but everywhere that I've been. And so we used this suitcase example, which was a lot of fun to work with, where we basically said, um, you know, we, we gave two pictures, one of a really nicely packed suitcase and one of a really uh, sloppily packed suitcase. And we said, hey, imagine that you're going to take a trip. And if you can plan now for what you're going to pack into that suitcase, what would you pack? Because what we all usually do, or a lot of us, probably me, Jared might not be in that that same class, is we get to a few hours before our plane's taking off and we're trying to shove everything that we can into our suitcase. And then we're doing everything that we can to like sit on it and like use crowbars to wedge things into it um, to, to fit everything that we can. And we end up making rash decisions at the end about what to leave. And then you get to your destination and you realize, you know what? That thing was really important. My toothbrush should have been in there. It's so small. Why didn't I pack it? And it's that late decision-making that you don't want to do. So we reframed that fear of by giving you priority, all I'm doing is making you choose the things that you won't do into we're going to try and do all of the things. But if we get to the end, if we get to where our plane is about to take off or where we're about to need to launch this project, what are the things that we could live without until the next sprint or the sprint after that? So it didn't seem so final and it didn't seem so we're just not going to do these things. Everyone agreed that we wanted to try and get them done, but we wanted to at least decide early in the process what that priority is. And in one afternoon, we knocked down barriers and we aligned a company around a product strategy. And that was really powerful. And I'm sure that there are a bunch of agile enthusiasts out there who are saying, well, duh, that's what you do with a <laughs> backlog, right? That's the point of prioritizing a backlog. And I think where this comes into play is that so many companies align around agile at the engineering layer. Yeah. Which is great. You need to do that. But before something even becomes a story that gets to a product owner to prioritize in a backlog, 
you need to be prioritizing the product strategy at a much higher level too. And in a perfect agile organization, that's probably happening. But I haven't seen too many perfect agile organizations, especially not, especially not in the in the smaller scale uh, companies. This is this is a design adaptation of the agile uh, backlog, but it's definitely a, a helpful helpful tool that if you don't do it, your teams are just going to spin endlessly. So. That is our episode specifically around work-life balance and how to, how to manage things like capacity and output and outcomes. Thank you so much for listening. We love our audience and we've loved seeing it grow. One thing that you could do for us would be to leave a rating or review on your chosen podcast platform. Subscribe to us on that platform or follow us at, at Making Digital Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and just leave us some comments. We'd love to hear it. Positive, negative. As designers, we thrive on that feedback. Uh, So thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Yes, we will. But until next time, I'm Jared Stevens. And I'm Jeremy Carney. And together we are Making Making Digital. digital. I think I... Did I... Jeez. The views and ideas expressed on this podcast are our own and do not represent those of any previous, present, or future employers. Or spouses. Or family. Peace out.